But we're going we're gonna to dive right in this morning uh, in the second week of, of a short series that we're in called Renew, a Biblical Perspective on Mental Health. Uh, just want to review a little bit of where we have been and why we're in this series. Uh, in terms like mental illness, we talked about this last week, terms like mental illness, mental health, Mental disorders are widely used in our society today, more and more uh, every day, but they're not commonly understood, these terms that we use. And because they're not commonly understood, we're unclear concerning the foundations of mental health or mental illness. Where does it come from in the first place? Uh, And because we have questions and we're unsure, we often... uh, don't don't really understand where to begin. How do we begin to unravel the challenges that so many of our neighbors are facing in regards to mental health? And because we don't know, we often use words like crazy or psychotic or deranged or wacky or suicidal. And these words that get thrown around create such a stigma for those who are dealing with challenges related to mental health that it often takes a problem, a challenge that needs to be brought into the light and addressed with grace And because we use words like this, the stigma actually drives people into isolation, into darkness and loneliness. And that's the last place we want to be when we're struggling with anything is alone. We don't want to be alone with those things. And so what we're hoping to do through this series, a number of different things, is to learn that we have to get healthier and we can't get healthier in a vacuum. We have to be together to have discussions. And so our goals with this series are simple. We want to destigmatize the challenges associated with mental illness. We want to normalize it because today, in fact, one out of five individuals at any given point in the United States is dealing with some sort of mental health crisis or some sort of mental health diagnosis. That's a lot of people. There are those of us in this room who deal with those challenges. And so we want to deal with it graciously, openly, lovingly so that we can get help. And so we do that by turning to God's word uh, for guidance in matters in these directions because the the word has a lot to say about mental health and stability and peace and how to overcome anxiety and depression. Um, We also want to grow in our confidence and our competence to be able to address a mental health challenge in our midst. And so we have some friends that are specifically going to come and give some tools about how that works. We're going to do that today. And then we want to be proactive. We want to know how to administer healing to be able to walk into these situations uh, with the grace and the love of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to head today. This second part of the series, last week we talked about beyond anxiety. This morning we're going to talk about the ministry of presence. What does it look like to be present? What does it look like that the Lord first, before we could be present anywhere, was present and is present with us? So the book of Joshua chronicles a story of the Israelites from the time of Moses' death all the way up and through uh, their entrance into the promised land and their dominion taken over the promised land. And Joshua, his name in the Greek is Jesus, which simply means the Lord saves. Isn't that great? The name of Jesus, the Lord saves. Joshua led a people who understood what it meant to abide in the presence of God. There were points throughout Israel's history, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, talk a lot about God's history in presence with the people of God all the way up and through the wanderings in the desert to the place where Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land before the judges, before the kings, 
before the prophets. But he led them into this place, and the nation of Israel, God's people, had shown a track record at times of learning and illustrating what it looked like to abide in the presence of God, to simply rest in his presence. But like me, they often struggled to stay in the presence of God and wandered off into places of fear, worry, and anxiety. Anyone else have a hard time resting and abiding in the presence of God sometimes? Great. We're just like the people that the Bible describes a longing to abide in God, and then just this crazy inability to seem to carry that out. That's the struggle that we face every day. There was a season where they did this very well, to rest and abide in his presence. Numbers nine twenty-three through 24 talks about the first nine or ten chapters of the book of Numbers talk about how the people learned to abide in the presence of the Lord. They did well. And after this, they began to fail over and over. But at the, the pinnacle of their ability to do this, Numbers 9, 23 and 24 says, Whether the cloud, because it was a cloud that came on the tent of meetings, the presence of God resided with the people. It says, Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year. So that's to say whether the presence of God stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, when the presence of the Lord lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his commands through Moses. So then the beginning of Joshua says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, this is Joshua 1, 1, The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend to the desert of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's just hang out around that promise for just a minute. I will never leave you or forsake you. The theology that we ascribe to as followers of Jesus informs us that the presence of God has always been with his people and continues to be with his people. God's presence has never been away from us except for this one moment there was one moment where the presence of god was notably absent and it happened to be that very moment when jesus hung on the cross for our sins in mark 15 through 34 jesus in the pinnacle of this moment screams out cries out eloi eloi lemma sabachthani my god my god and this is in the aramaic My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, with the weight of the sin of the world hanging on God himself in the flesh, Jesus' demeanor is expressed in a way that we had never seen it before. Not in the moment where Jesus was agonizing in the garden did he experience this kind of anguish. Not in the city being condemned for sins he didn't commit did he experience this level of anguish. But in the moment when he bore the weight of our sin on the cross, he was alone. 
on the cross, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like God has forsaken you? Have you ever talked to somebody struggling, battling against the anguishes of mental illness and heard them say something like, where is God in all of this? Well, I hope he's there. I hope we have a theology informs us that he's present in the midst of all of that. Why are you so far from saving me? Psalm 22, so far from my cries of anguish. David says, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. We can't read this psalm without moving towards Jesus on the cross. It talks later, David, of his clothing being stripped from him, his garments being stripped from him. But even in his anguish, I still believe that the presence of the Lord was there. Theologically, theologically we know that there's this only one time when Jesus hung on the cross where God's presence was not with Every other moment it has been. In that moment, because the Father could not associate with sin, in that way was the presence of God separated. But then the presence of the Lord, the victory of Jesus on the cross, reconciled all of it for us. David knew it. Psalm 39, 7-10. In a moment of greater clarity, he said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise that our God has for us. The question in response to him today very pragmatically as believers who walk out our faith with fear and trembling is simply this. Do we believe it? Do we believe that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us? Ask yourself, take a moment to review your week and everything that the Lord allowed you to experience, good and bad, and ask yourself, were you operating out of a belief in every moment that states, God is for me? He is with me. Or were there moments that you had, like I did, where I just kind of slipped into doubt for a minute? Maybe not even consciously, but my actions in certain moments this week would indicate that I didn't necessarily believe that God would never leave me because I felt a little bit alone. It's in those moments where we tell ourselves the Lord is with us. And when we operate out of that belief system, it changes everything. It doesn't mean that the week isn't hard. It simply means that God was with us in it. And guess what? We all made it. We're still breathing. We're still here. And if we stewarded the moments of pain well, the moments of anxiety, depression, bipolar, whatever it happened to be that might be plaguing us in the moment, God is with us in it. He's with every single person who has dealt with any sort of struggle. The Lord is near. The radical relocation of God speaks to presence. It's something that we've shared a little bit about before. An author, a mentor, a pastor, Jerry Cook, who has since passed to be with the Lord. But he wrote a book, we've talked about it, The Monday Morning Church. And in Monday Morning Church, he talks about the presence of God. As a radically relocating presence. That God is radically relocating himself and has done so throughout scripture. That we've read from the Old Testament where God's presence was out there around the tent of meeting, around the tabernacle, in his presence like a cloud or a 
or a billowing fire would go and move. And when God's presence moved, everyone got up and went with it. And when it didn't move, they didn't go, except for when they were disobeying. But we have evidence that this is possible to be with the presence of God in a burning bush or from heaven or hovering over the waters. God's presence was out there somewhere, right? The miracle of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, is that that God out there became the God with us. So if before we could identify his presence connected to a place at Christmas, we could now identify the presence of God with a person. So it went from a place to a person. And you still had to follow the person around, and boy, did they follow the person around. Even unto his death, his resurrection, his ascension, until he sent the presence of God with inside of us at Pentecost. That's the miracle that the God who was out there, who became the God who was with us, became the God who was in us. Colossians 1.27, to them, God's people, God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. The mystery is Christ is in us. He's the hope of glory. So a question in today's context How will the world know that God is with the world? In today's context, in the struggles that we deal with on a day-in and day-out basis, how will people know the presence of God in their midst unless He dwells in us and we dwell with them? God's presence makes all the difference. It's upon us to cultivate, as Jerry Cook says, cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. That just means like we're little radios. The, the presence of God is the radio signal that's always available but cannot be tapped unless there's a device to tap it, right? The presence of God is here whether I'm in this room or not, but he's in me. And because he's in me and i got a mouth and some ears and some eyes and hopefully some compassion, people can experience the tangible presence of God, the ministry of presence, God with us. People can experience that through us. And so I've asked two friends to join me this morning. Um, these are two men that model the presence of Jesus amongst a large community of people who daily battle the consequences associated with mental health. And they're just the presence of Jesus in the midst as a part of Seattle Clubhouse. Um, and Larry Klum and Ryan Likes, two guys that I worked with at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, uh, have now jettisoned into kind of an outreach plant on Capitol Hill called the Seattle Clubhouse, which is part of a larger context called Hero House, right? And they spend their days being the presence of Jesus to those who are overwhelmed by the challenges of mental health. And they're mentors of mine in this field. And I tell you what, when I'm with these men, I am acutely aware of the presence of Jesus all the time. And it's not usually anything fancy. Sometimes it's making a taco salad or standing out back talking or whatever. But God is with them, and he uses them. And I wanted to have them come to spend some time with us to talk about the practical challenges associated with mental health. So we're going to do that. I forgot to ask you, would you guys like us to show the video first, or is that a part of your presentation? How would you like us to do that? Let's show the video, and then we'll have these guys come up. All right, can we welcome Ryan and Larry to come on up with us here? Very good. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for coming today. 
Um, so friends of mine, uh, another little pitch for the plunge, Ryan was attending a church in Kirkland while I was attending a church in Bothell, and somehow I don't even remember how we got connected, but he signed up to come on an urban plunge with us, uh, which landed him as an employee of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission as a part of the outreach team there for a couple of years, and now on to Larry, uh, with Larry in the uh, Seattle Clubhouse. And so if you go on an urban plunge, you might end up sitting in a seat like this in a few years talking about how God has turned you into a missionary in the city. So, it's happened to, it's actually happened to three of us in this room right now. It happened to Nathan. It just happens. So, um, but uh, yes, Ryan has become a friend. And then during my time on staff, got to know Larry. Uh, we have participated in something called, um, uh, team mission and Ragnar relays, and so going out and running on behalf of those uh, dealing with anxiety, depression, addiction issues, and running long distances through the middle of the night in all sorts of funny places all over the state. Um, so he's a runner. Uh, we've gotten to know each other that way and then being on staff together. But just thank you so much for being here uh, this morning. And I'm, we're just going to take a time and I'm going to ask some questions. In fact, my questions are over here. I forgot my questions. Grab them. And come on over. But they're just going to have a chance to share, and then we'll be around to answer some of your questions um, as well. And we will also be uh, providing access to these guys and others who can help us with this moving forward long term if it's something you're more interested in finding out about. So I guess the first question we'll ask is... um, Besides Jesus as an important name or presence in the Bible, is there a word in the Bible that would come in as a close second in regards to your understanding of the fullness of the gospel? You should take that one. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having this series for two Sundays and for uh, making this such a priority. Uh, It. I've been asked to speak at churches on this subject of mental illness, and usually I get five minutes, maybe ten, even to the deacons at the church. It's kind of viewed as an aspect of our humanity, but I view it as really most of our humanity. Our brains are so important, and we need to be talking about this um, global crisis that we're experiencing now in mental health. Uh, It costs trillions of dollars in the lost productivity and the cost associated with it. It shortens lifespans by 20 years on average, those with serious mental illness. That's, That's an outrage. We need to be talking about it, and we should be talking about it in our churches and taking two Sundays or even more to um, dive into this. But getting back to the question, um, what's the most important word in the Bible, in my opinion, besides Jesus, would be the word that Chris mentioned about 15 times in your talk already today. It's a simple preposition called with. Emmanuel, God with us. And when I think of our mental health system up until recently, uh, we've had such a focus on reducing symptoms and prolonging life, which is, those are good things to do. But maybe the chief problem with humanity is not just to, it's not just our mortality, but it's our isolation. And when I look at people living with serious mental illness, that seems to be the chief problem. And the Bible totally over and over again speaks to that from from the beginning. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. First John 1, 
Um, in the beginning, the Word was God. The Word was with God. And as I've studied this, just you can go through almost every passage as Chris shared with us today and see that word with come up, that he's with us in our darkness. He makes the darkness tremble when he's with us. It doesn't take away the darkness. Um, like Chris said last week, joy isn't the absence of happiness, but joy uh in Jesus is this undercurrent, This I think Yancey describes it as lava under the crust of daily life that just flows in us. And if we have that um, in our presence with others, that begins to change people, even people living with serious mental illness. And so when I first heard that, I actually heard that from my pastor, my former pastor, uh, that, that idea that maybe with is the most important word. Um, I just picked that up and ran with it. And I think that's going to be the gist of what Ryan and I's thoughts are with you today, is how to be with people effectively. Um, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, the, um, as we were kind of reflecting on this, and, and as I've been doing this work um, you know, for a few years now, one of the passages that I've looked at in a new light is uh, Matthew 25. And it's um, this, uh, and the, the specific part of Matthew 25 is when Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. And he's talking about the the last judgment. You know, it's this pretty well known passage about you know, um, you know, in the in the you know, last judgment, you know, people will come to me, and and Jesus is going to be separating out the the sheep from the goats, and people are going to be like, you know, well, Jesus, you know, when did we? Um, well, he you know, he says some interesting things about. You know, well, the reason I'm separating y'all is because some of you, um, you know, uh, reacted to me one way and others didn't. And, and the specifics he, he uses, he says, when I was when I was hungry, you fed me. You know, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Um, and uh, but but two of the, the the last two things he says, I think, are really interesting. He says, when I was sick, you you came to me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And, um, you know, there's all that kind of this uproar because, you know, some people would be like, well, Jesus, you know, if we would have actually seen you, you know, hurting in those situations, of course, we would have responded well. And he's like, well, you, you didn't do it to the least of these. So you didn't do it to me. Um, and then the sheep are kind of surprised at like, oh, we didn't realize we were doing this to you. Um, but the thing for, for that I think is relevant to this discussion is, you know, when he talks about being sick and in prison, Jesus doesn't say I was sick and you healed me. He didn't say I was in prison and you got me out. You came and we we busted out of there, or you got me this great plea bargain or something. He says you 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 just came to me, you visited me, um, and that's really spoken to me about um, Jesus's interest in that. Of um, you know, there's situations in life where people are hurting and in need, and what is needed more than anything is just being with. Um, so. Um, yeah, I like I like that as a kind of a backdrop here, and gets me thinking about Jesus's priorities. Um. Absolutely. Um, if you guys could share a little bit now about the complexities of mental illness and how just this simple idea of presence or uh, the word that I learned at the mission over the years that I think I just came up with is withness. It's the best that I could describe a decade of working uh, in the city was withness, and it's, it's a precious thing. But if you could start to unpack or unravel some of these challenges around mental health and how the simple act of being present makes a difference, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. 
I'll take a little bit of a stab and then I'll you know, hand it over here. Um, so one of the really salient words here we've talked about is isolation. We've, we've mentioned that several times. Um, and that's something that our uh, culture is really, we're really sick with in general. Um, and, you know, when you look at uh, numbers around mental illness, you know, they're, they're skyrocketing. Um, in our country, um, the um, the only one of the top ten causes of, of death that's on the rise um, here in the United States is suicide. Um, and there, there's a, a direct connection there with feelings of isolation alone. There's people are looking for an escape. Right. Um, so our, our culture is really struggling with this. And and when it comes to mental illness, um, it, you know, that's just exacerbated that it's it's increased people's feeling of isolation. Um, as we were talking earlier this morning, and I think something we really need to, to really hone in on is shame. And that I think that's one of the main reasons that um, any of us, all of us experience isolation. Shame keeps us from connection. It keeps us from one another. These questions of I'll be found out. I'm a phony. If people really knew what I was like. And with mental illness, um, I mean, sometimes those are just the symptoms of mental illness. Paranoia is a, is a very common symptom that comes along with mental illness um, that you know really um, buys into that shame, that fear of what's around me. Um, you know, but also a lot of times, just uh, mental illness is is pretty scary because people are having these thoughts and these experiences that they just don't know what they're all about. I don't know what's happening to me. Um, it can it's so common to hear somebody say, "I just feel out of control. I'm confused." Um, and, and that can really, again, just lead to a sense of shame of, I don't know who I can talk to about this. I'm the only one who experiences this is often how the thoughts go. Um, so it can really, really lead to this chasm of separation um, between you know, uh, one another. And so um, that's part of the reason why presence is so important, the willingness to come in a relationship. Um, so, yeah, I think those words are really important for us this morning. And, um, uh, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to meet one of my heroes. Her name is Ellen Sachs. She wrote a book called The Center Cannot Hold. She lives with schizophrenia. She graduated from Yale Law School with a degree in law. During her schooling, she began to have a psychotic episode right in the library with her students, and they couldn't understand what to do with her. It was so complex. Here, here was this leader among students, four-point student, well, later she went and got her degree in psychiatry. She has three PhDs, one from Oxford, one from Yale, another from Vanderbilt, and she's a teacher at USC right now. So just to share with you that recovery does happen even among those with serious mental illness. But the three things she said that helped her the most in her recovery, which was complex, but the first is psychotherapy and medications. That is important for people living with serious mental illness. We don't want to minimize that here. It's a brain disorder. There are chemical changes that happen in the brain, just like it happened with me and my kidney when I was 21 years old in college. I needed a kidney transplant suddenly because of some chemical changes that were happening. With mental disorders, it happens to be the brain where there's chemical changes. And Ellen Sachs had no control over that. She needed psychotherapy and medications, but that wasn't all. She cites she needed the presence of her husband. Her husband was amazing. He stuck with her. Her friends, not so much because they didn't know what to do. They sort of backed away from her, but her husband stayed. And as family members, that's a huge 
challenge and burden when you have a family member with a serious mental illness. You need support. Um, they were able to get that. But the third thing that was key for her was the ability to work, to get back into school. For her, it happened to be getting another Ph.D., but a sense of accomplishment. So those three things, it's, it's the medications and the, the professional help, but it's also relationships, supportive relationships, the with. And then the third thing is a sense of accomplishment. So when we approach individuals with serious mental illness, we don't just kind of hand out the referrals and say, yeah, go see this person, you'll, you'll get better. It has to be more than that. It has to be an invitation to come and experience accomplishment and relationship. So that's kind of the idea behind Clubhouse, what we experienced on the streets with outreach at the mission. We saw we were doing some of, some of the help, but we wanted to take it to the next level and support family members by having a place to come to where you can belong and have meaningful relationship. Which is which is wonderful, and we saw this video um, that was produced and put together that so well um, communicates the work that you're doing. There's chances to go and visit and to see the work that they're doing as well. And what I understand, this is good news for us in Everett now, is that there's an Everett Clubhouse hopefully coming online in 2019. I think is it March 21st is going to be at, at Edmonds Community College or Everett Community College, the discussion about Everett Clubhouse with... Yep, with uh, a gal named Susie, who we'd hope to have here today. She couldn't make it, but she will be orchestrating and organizing the work of the Everett Clubhouse coming in 2019. So it'll be closer to us um, that we, uh, by having a chance to go and visit, in our interactions then just moving about the neighborhood, can introduce people who need a clubhouse to clubhouse by going with them to the clubhouse and then finding the resources and the expertise that's beyond what any of us will have. So that's good news. Um, you've talked a little bit about the presence of um, the idea of being present in the context of mental illness. Can you guys talk more specifically now about how presence works uh, at the clubhouse on Capitol Hill? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we're actually, just a small correction, we're kind of a, in between the central district and the international district. Okay. Yeah, so um, there's a, are you familiar with, there's this really cool red boat pho place that's right in there? If, if any of you know what I'm talking about, uh, maybe you'll see it. At, we're, we're very close to there, about 14th and Jackson. Um, so, yes, come see us. Um, so... You know, you got to see this video a little bit. Um, it just gives a picture of Clubhouse. You saw us doing some stuff. Lunch was being served. People were writing up on a board. Um, and, and Larry talked about, you know, kind of these these dual things of relationships and work. And and that's really the core of what we do at Clubhouse. Um, the the thing that we really build around is work. So like, um, you know, Larry was mentioning about this woman, she needed a sense of accomplishment because mental illness and especially severe mental illness where it's really impacted people's lives robs nine times out of 10 will have robbed someone of their job um, and, of, and of a sense of accomplishment. Right. I don't have a sense of purpose. I don't have anything to do. And that just spirals us. Any of us who have been in experiences of that in our life of I don't really have anything to do. There's nothing I'm passionate about, whatever. Um, I don't have a job that can that can just really hurt us in terms of our sense of, of worth. And and um, so it can just really um, uh, increase, you know, the, the symptoms of mental illness. 
so we folks come in and they and they contribute in some way. You know, people with severe mental illness need to know that you have something to, to contribute. We're going to focus on what your strengths are, what your interests are. So some of those things are around. You know, we make a delicious lunch every day, um, but the you know we don't just cook it as staff. We don't just cook it for people. It's we get together and we have a meeting and we say, what should we eat uh, next week? Let's make our menu. Um, who's got an interest in cooking, whatever. So we, we menu plan, we grocery shop together, um, we cook it together, we eat it together, we clean up together. Um, everybody gets to participate. Um, and, and they get to participate as they want to. Um, and so some folks, because of the nature of mental illness, you've got good days and you've got bad days. So there's some days that somebody is like, I'm just doing it. I'm just amazed I can be here. <laughs> so that's your job, just to be here today. And if you feel like doing something, great. If not, no problem. Just just enjoy being a part of this community. You've got somewhere to belong. Um, so it's cool because presence gets to happen as we're doing something together, shared activity. Um, how many of you have been to a, a coffee date that's just been pr- pretty awkward? Um, I know I have because maybe maybe you don't really know what to talk about. Or you're not sure what you have in common with somebody, right? Or maybe there's something really obvious to talk about, but you don't know how to talk about that. Um, So having work can really alleviate that. You have some of the best conversations. I've had some of the best conversations at Clubhouse as I'm doing dishes with somebody, right? Or as I'm taking a field trip to go to Olympia to advocate um, for mental health care um, you know, with our, our legislators down there. So, so some of the best things happen in that context. Um, so that's a little bit of what I love about Clubhouse is relationships are built in the context of work. You have that sense of purpose and accomplishment. Um, you mentioned about Sharice. Oh, sure, yeah. So one one of our members, uh, I, I just love, she, she really just kind of put words to this idea the other day. She um, lives with a, a variety kind of, of of mental illnesses, but a lot of the ways that shows up is she has pretty serious delusions on a regular basis, right? And delusions, just a fancy way of just thinking there's something uh, real that's not real. That's all that psychosis is. It's just kind of a break from reality. So a lot of times she'll just be talking about things that, that aren't actually real, um, and but, but they are to her, you know, and so we just listen um, you know, with compassion, but we get to say then, um, you know, thank you for sharing that. But you know, we we've got some lunch to make. So, what would you like to do? You know, how would you like to help today? Or, um, you know, I know this about um, about this member. Well, uh, yes, we'll just call her. We'll call her Kim. Um, and uh, I know about Kim. She loves to clean. Loves to clean. So she's just like delighted if you if you you know give her a task that's oriented around you know dusting or sweeping or something. And so there was this one particular day where I asked her, you know, Sharice, it looks like you're getting ready to go. Are you done for the day? And um, you know, and then I said, um, because if you're not, we really could use some help uh, with some cleaning if you're interested. And she was like, Yeah, you know, I was thinking about leaving, but if I leave, I'm just going to get lost in my thoughts, and I don't want to do that. I would love a job that really helps me. Um, and we, we kind of know that. That's kind of why Clubhouse is set up. But it's just awesome to have somebody really put words to that. Like that having a job is so helpful for her. Because otherwise she's going to leave and just get lost. And, then, and unfortunately, the way that our mental health system is kind of set up, that um, is, is where people are left often. is because community is not necessarily a part of it. So, so Kim, like many others, uh, lives in a studio apartment alone 
Um, she doesn't have a job. She's on Social Security disability. And, and our system says those are the things we'll provide for you. We'll provide you a place to be alone. <laughs> we'll provide you a, a you know a therapist, a psychiatrist, um, and we'll give you you know enough money to survive. Those things are good. Those things are fine. But if you just leave it at that, wow, people spiral. Not good. Um, so she really needs um, those relationships and that, that sense of purpose. Um, yeah, I think the focus is often what is the matter with you when we see someone with mental illness. And we need to change that to what matters to you instead of what's the matter with you. And find out what things they are interested in doing and key into that and support it. And I think that doesn't just happen in a clubhouse. That happens in church. Because every church has lots of jobs, right, and tasks to keep the church running. Find those things that those individuals in your church body would like to do. Just, and that happens over those awkward coffee conversations sometimes. But um, you have to start somewhere and you have to start with presence and just being able to listen. Um, Craig Rennebaum, one of our favorite authors, and Robert, you were reading his book. That was great to see. Um, he says, your kind word, your gentle gesture, your presence is like medicine. So keep that in mind. That That is where we start. And then we start looking for abilities rather than disability. People with mental illness often know quite well. They've been told over and over what the disabilities are. And our, I think our job as a church, as lay mental health people, is to find out what those abilities are and emphasize those and foster and cultivate those. That's so good. And things that I've learned from, from Ryan, who actually facilitated my two-day mental health first aid training uh, about a year ago, and from Larry also just by spending time together, is is understanding how to interact with someone when they come into our presence. And you realize that there has been a break from reality in a sense. And this morning was perfect for it because we have a friend that lives in the neighborhood who visited us, visited us for the second time this morning. I'll just, um, I'll just call him Joe. That's not his name, but he came in this morning, uh, having a little bit of an episode, uh, in terms of being fearful of, um, the controllers. And a lot of times there's this understanding, this idea that someone somewhere, some entity is trying to get me. And in that moment, the reality of that is even though we know that's not real for the person experiencing that it's very real it's the realest thing that they're experiencing and so not to placate it or to foster it but to say hmm, that sounds like that could be a really um, scary thing and what I learned from my friends here is that uh, work is important and so when Joe was with us I thought what we're in an empty room setting all this up and I'm thinking what can Joe do right now well Joe can help hang our banners and so Joe spent 15 minutes sorting all the little clips and the parts that went with that uh, and helped us set the banners up this morning. And I thought, what a perfect morning for this. And he was present with us and, st- and invited to stay, and he, he didn't choose to stay for the rest of the service, which is just fine because we'll interact with whoever the Lord brings to us for however long they bring them to us. And when Joe was finishing after being with us for, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes, he sat and had a conversation with Robert for a while, and Robert did an incredible job of just listening. Uh, and then he stood at the door and he prayed a blessing that God would bless our families and our neighborhood and our our gathering. And then whoosh, off he went. And if that wasn't the presence of Jesus with us this morning, then I'm not exactly sure what it is. Um, and it's a, a beautiful thing. So 
I want to transition in our last few minutes, and we could sit here all day, and I, I would like to, and there's so much more that needs to be learned. Uh, but for those who, and we have a few in our midst that have already said, yeah, I need to know more about this. They've come to me and said, I need to know more. And we've already just said the disclaimer that 14 hours of training even, or all the training that we've gone through does not make us experts necessarily in this field. But if somebody says, yeah, this is something I want to get more involved with, what are some early practical steps that we can take as a group um, to begin moving forward with that? Yeah. Well, one of the classes that we teach that you mentioned is uh, a class called Mental Health First Aid. And it's a, an international curriculum. And so, um, you know, I would, if you're interested, that's an eight-hour training now. They've kind of shortened it. And um, I'm sure there's, there's several in your area, you know, or Larry and I would, would be interested if that was something that the church wanted to do, come do. Um, you know, we could come and, and facilitate that. Um, but I'm also sure there's other classes in your area. One of the things that's really great about that is they just go over the basics of, okay, what are some of the most common mental illnesses here in America? And what do they look like? What do they show up like? Because sometimes we just need some, some of that basic true information to help um, push some of those fears aside that we have because fear is often just kind of built on not knowing, right? If I, if I don't know stuff, then I just imagine I can imagine the worst or whatever. So just having some good basic information is great. Um, and then we just get we equip people with a little tool belt um, that they can take with them, you know, a metaphorical tool belt of just um, what do I, what are some things I can do when I'm interacting with somebody who's in crisis or where maybe I see some signs of developing mental illness, you learn how to be a first aider, right? You're just, you, there's this limited, you're, you're trying to be a bridge to further care. You're not trying to solve the whole thing. You're just, how do I play my role, right? For as long as I'm with somebody, how do I play my role? Um, so I think that class is really helpful. Um, oh, sorry. I'm like, yeah, oh, you're like, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, so that, that was the main thing I wanted to share. Yeah. Well, maybe something you can just take away from today, this morning, uh, without taking the mental health first aid class, one little tool I'll give you in your toolkit, is it's okay to sit down and listen to someone explain their delusion. It's okay. You're not feeding into it by listening. And what you can do is you listen. You listen for patterns and themes of the distress that underlies the false belief that they have. And you echo that back as you listen and say, that's, that is very, that sounds very distressing and I'm here with you. So that's something you can take away right now that's not a problem like you just did this morning. You listened to this gentleman that came in. I think that's important information because sometimes we think with the complexity of serious mental illness, especially we say, I need an expert. I got to get away. I'm stepping back. I might get hurt. And again, that's a myth about mental illness. People with mental illness are just as likely to commit violence as the general population. It's not, it's, it's not a violent illness in and of itself. Now, if someone is in a space, just like if someone is high on uh, drugs, illicit drugs, then it could be dangerous and you have to use common sense. But I think the most important thing to realize is most of the time when someone's expressing a delusion, they're not dangerous. They're simply, their brain is playing tricks on them and they need someone to hear them out. And there's been many times, many times where I or Ryan or others have listened until someone was finished and they literally became emotional. You're the first person who's heard me out. 
because usually the tendency is I can't handle this. Uh, you need to go talk to someone else. And I just encourage you to go ahead and listen to someone explain their issue, their their source of distress to you, and, and just watch how that can help transform them. And then know, of course, referrals of where you can send people. Be aware where the mental health agencies are, uh, where doctors are that you know that you can refer people to. That's important too, but I, I just offer that. Yeah. Story about um, one of my one of my best friends to this day, and this is a guy that um, Chris knows well. Also, met him at the Union Gospel Mission. His name's Richard, and um, he, as often happens, um, you know, he's had a lifetime of struggling with addiction and mental illness. Um, often those play off of each other, and and very often and trauma. Yes. Um, so those three so often go together. Um, and anyway, the, the, the thing that I think is significant and that I love to kind of share about our relationship is the role that I've really played with him is, is this, you know, I would say kind of a small but really significant role of just being a friend. That's what he's needed from me more than anything else. Um, he now lives in um, another state because he couldn't get the mental health care that he needed here. His doctor actually told him, you need to move, um, because there wasn't the services here. Um, so that's something we were struggling with as a state. So we moved uh, to a different place so we could get the care that he needs. Um, and our action interaction most of the time looks like um, uh, texting, You know, where, where typically he'll initiate a little text at uh, the beginning of most days, and he'll just say, um, hey, you know, here's what I'm doing for the day, or you know, how are you, love you, thinking about you. He's constantly getting people at his church to pray for my family um, just just because that's who he is. He's just such a sweet guy. But Craig Rennebaum, in that book, he talks about um, uh, that for folks with serious mental illness, they need a circle of care. They need a team of people with them. And so like Larry was talking about, you know, professionals, professional care needs to be a part of that, but it's only part of the circle. A huge part that is needed is, is you know, this community, There's, are these relationship pieces. So what I've been able to do with Richard and he for me is just as simple as friendship. Um, and it requires me being honest about what I can do and what I can't do. Um, and so I really encourage you with that is, like, be yourself. Be honest with what you can do and what you can't do, what you know and what you don't know. That's that's actually a really honoring thing to people. Um, uh, but just play your part. Play your part. God's not calling you to fix the whole thing. You know, he's just calling you to play your part. And that might just be being with somebody, listening, being honest about here's what I can do. And um, maybe here's some some other connections that could be helpful for you, too. Or, you know, who else do you have on your team that's helping you right now? Um, Thank you guys for coming today. And I know I've had a chance to visit Clubhouse. And is it, it's every day before we started on Tuesdays, but every day now, 14th and Jackson, same same spot. Yep, yep. Um, they would be very open to having field trips, and that's a huge part of what learning to be a South Everett Foursquare missionary looks like is going on these little two- to four-hour mission trips. We may not all be able to go to Tecate uh, or to Studio Del Creador or go see our friends uh, in Southeast Asia or travel to Africa, but you don't need to go to all of those places because the presence of the Lord is needed everywhere. And because Christ is in us, because of his radical relocation from out there to with us to in us, now his presence, we take 
we go with the tangible presence of Jesus. Again, um, to talk about something we talked about last week when someone's experiencing a crisis, it's as easy as walking up, coming alongside them and saying, Ryan, it looks like you're going through a difficult situation. Is there anything I can do to help? And we've answered the questions, does anyone know where I'm at? Does anyone know that I'm hurting? Does anybody care? So simple things that we begin to communicate the hope of the gospel um, in such ways. So can we pray for you this morning, the both of you, uh, as we conclude our time? Yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you guard our hearts and our minds in you. Uh, everything this side of heaven is flawed. Uh, but Lord, you went to the cross uh, to make a way for us, for all of us, not based on a performance or um, our ability to comprehend necessarily, but because we've cried out to you, Abba Father. Help us in our greatest moment of need. Thank you for Ryan and Larry and Gretchen and their whole team, the whole family at Seattle Clubhouse. We ask that you would abide with them and they would abide in you Monday through Friday as they provide great community to friends, uh, Lord, in um, the inner cities of Seattle. Lord, we ask for an awareness, a peace, an overwhelming peace, a transcends understanding that will come. Lord, I pray that as the clubhouse and Everett comes online this year, that you would help us um, as the direct neighbors to know how to be a support, to how to get involved, to how to be peace, uh, to be shalom and prosperity in the city. Lord, we thank you. We want flourishing. Lord, we want your presence with us. So be, Lord, with Ryan and Larry uh, as they uh, continue this good work and as we learn. Lord, we want to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. These guys will be around for a little bit before I take them to tacos. Uh, and if you have questions, you want to talk to them, you need prayer, uh, come and talk to anybody. But God bless you, church. Again, tonight, 5 p.m. at my house. Let me know if you want to come, if you're interested in the urban plunges now or later. Um, it will land you a job as a missionary somewhere. So <laughs> God bless you, church. Have a great week. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.